you know, it's almost as if they're trying to stall to the point where he may be elected president and therefore given the stature of that position, possibly not be able to be criminally tried because of the duties of the office and the precedent that exists with respect to that. But again, right now he's Joe Q. Public. He is a candidate for the president and as such, he should not have any special privileges or considerations that should come into play on whether or not he's prosecuted. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Kenyon Brown and Kevin Carroll on our continuing series. It used to be about President Trump and his legal troubles, but it's actually expanded. So, gentlemen, first of all, welcome back. Thanks for having us, Tom. Pleasure. I would say this is as momentous a week as I can remember. I'm sure we're only going to have more of them, but we had three huge events this week. And I guess I'd like to start with your thoughts on the hearing yesterday in Judge Carroll's court in Florida on the trial settings or dueling motions for trial settings in that case. I'll start just by saying that I was surprised at how poorly prepared the president's defense was in it not having any serious legal argument and just saying, politically, can we please have this after the election? I thought they might have chosen a half dozen iterative steps that each took two months that just coincidentally put a proposed trial date in December of 2024. But them just coming out and saying, please don't let us Don't make us do this before the election. I thought was not astute. (laughs) Yeah, so I have an interesting thought about it. I thought their motion did have some substance. When you look at it, they cited in their motion that there were 428,000 plus records in excess of almost a million pages to review, over 122,000 emails, and 90 separate custodians, and the government still has not produced all of the information that it will produce. So I think the government kind of expecting a six-month time frame from indictment to trial, that's a bit ambitious. And we, yes, have electronic tools that help us look at these documents now, but you still have to lay human eyeballs on these things. So I think a six-month time frame, they had some merit to me about this not being really an opportunity for the defense to prepare. Now, I don't think it's necessarily like they put in their memorandum that it needs to be 35 months or necessarily 15 months, but six months, in my opinion, 
given the volume of documents that was there or provided thus far, is too ambitious and really kind of unfair to the defense. But that being said, 15-month time frame or even a year time frame should be sufficient. I wonder if the judge ends up splitting the baby somewhere between, as you say, Canyon, the rushed government request, given the amount of discovery material and the fanciful, you know, please not anytime soon request of the defense. And it's one of the problems that's going to bite Trump in his rear now in that he can't get a major law firm to represent him. If he had a major law firm representing him, you know, he could get through that discovery material much, much quicker. But if he's just dealing with a handful of individual solo practitioners, much harder. Yeah. Another strategy that they mentioned in there that I found kind of interesting was they said, hey, please don't keep us to a time frame before the election, but perhaps next year, because we've got a litany of other trials, both civil and criminal, taking place during those other time frames, where we're going to be really busy, in addition to campaigning for president. Well, if only every criminal defendant had such a luxury to avoid pincer movements from the government like that. I mean, that happens to people sometimes. And it's unfortunate for them, but it's not at all unusual. And I think most judges look at that with a jaundiced eye saying, hey, give me a break. You put yourself in this situation, you deal with it. Let me pick up with something you started with, Kevin, which was your view of essentially the defendant's argument that as a political matter, we need to put this off. And I wanted to ask both of you all, there's a wide variety of legal reasons to have a trial or delay it. There's a variety of other reasons that would go into a court's calculus. Is this political reason, if I could call it that, is that something that a court either could or should consider? I like the old DOJ policy of saying that they're not going to do a sort of public investigative step on a candidate for office in the 60 or 90 days before an election. I think that makes a lot of sense because somebody might not be guilty of a crime, but if you announce the indictment or conduct a very public search of them right before the election, it might make it look as if they had committed a crime. They lose the election on that basis. And that's an unfair intrusion of the Department of Justice into the political process. But here, I think what the former president's lawyers are asking just goes way too far over in the other direction. I'm running for president. Therefore, please don't adjudicate the serious criminal charges against me. As Kenyon said, you know, John Q. Public might be facing criminal charges with a number of things going on in his or her professional life. And they don't have the opportunity to say, well, please wait. I'm waiting to, you know, close this major investment banking deal. Please don't put me on trial or whatever the case may be in their walk of life. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with a judge accepting an argument from a defendant that because they are standing for re-election, they should be beyond the reach of the criminal law. Yeah, I share that opinion. And, you know, it's Almost as if they're trying to stall to the point where he may be elected president and therefore, given the stature of that position, possibly not be able to be criminally tried because of the duties of the office and the precedent that exists with respect to that. But again, right now, he's Joe Q. Public. He is a candidate for the president and as such. He should not have any special privileges or considerations that should come into play on whether or not he's prosecuted. I was concerned going into this hearing that the judge would either accept the arguments of the defendant or 
rule in such a way that, as you suggested, Kevin, there could be a series of steps that need to be taken to get this matter ready for trial. And unfortunately, those steps would be 24, 36, 48 months in length. And it really started when we tried to get Mr. Nutella in for his arraignment and he couldn't get a lawyer, or at least his D.C. lawyer couldn't come down. And I didn't understand why local counsel couldn't appear for him there as they'd appeared for him in pleadings. And it's just been a series of matters. And the latest one was apparently when the DOJ tried to meet and confer on a motion, the defendants declined to do so. And the court rejected the filing saying you didn't meet and confer. Having been the recipient of some rulings like that, it seems to me that the court has begun a process of slow walking this so that there'll be small steps that will lengthen this out interminably, getting the defendants what they want. Am I just conspiracy Tom running rampant? As Henry Kessinger said, even paranoids have their enemies. So maybe conspiracy Tom, if this is correct, there's something going on here. I don't know that it's a conspiracy, but something that has me concerned is that defense counsel and the defendant here have made some absolutely extraordinary public statements saying that the government lawyers didn't love their country and hinting that the prosecutor's family should be confronted with evidence of the defendant's guilt. And even on the other side, the sort of elaborate praise of the judge as a good American by defense counsel. I know gag orders are difficult to enforce, but why the judge hasn't shut down a lot of this public commentary by counsel and the defendant, I don't understand. And does make me worry, to your point, that this may not be a very orderly run trial. I go back, Tom, to the Justice Department's selection of that federal district to bring this case. They knew it could be an individual such as this judge who might play a little bit loose, and I don't want to make any allegations, but some might say played a little bit loose. But I think that's part of the overall government strategy so that once a verdict is reached, the majority of Americans will have full faith and confidence in any decision that's made. Because just think, if you did it in Washington, D.C. or New York, you would say, hey, you know, that's clearly a biased venue for the former president, and he's not going to get a fair shake there. But if the Justice Department goes to the lion's den, so to speak, where President Trump has perceived support, and still gets a jury of 12 through all the curves and twists of trial, the guilty verdict, then I think everyone is going to be, or most people will be able to walk away from it saying, look, it was not unfair to the former president. You can believe the certainty of that judgment. So to me, it's kind of like a Supreme Court wanting an I know kind of decision rather than 5-4. That's what I attribute it to. So I think you can anticipate a few of these curves and twists, but they will get there. Now, whether or not it gets there before the election is another question. I think that they certainly can. And I think that this judge will be a little bit more circumspect on this occasion as opposed to her prior ruling, which she was reversed, because no judge likes to be reversed. So I think she'll be a little bit more circumspect and less apt to kind of let the defense just run away and extend out the time. I get Kenyon's good point that the DOJ 
one of the reasons it's probably bringing this case in the Southern District of Florida is so that it can't be accused of sort of venue shopping to find a venue that's going to be unfriendly to the former president. But something that frustrates me as a lawyer and an American is this idea that a judicial district of the United States is prima facie unfair because of the people who make it up. When Trump got found liable for sexual assault recently, I saw all sorts of members of Congress coming out and saying, well, it's a New York jury, so we shouldn't take it seriously. I've been a New York juror, and being from there, I certainly took my duties seriously. And I think it's offensive to suggest, not that Kenyon say this, but it's offensive to suggest that all the people in a district are unfair and therefore a jury verdict isn't fair if it takes place there. If a crime takes place in Washington, D.C., it's going to be a mostly black jury. If a crime takes place in Vermont, it's going to be a mostly white jury. I trust the jury system, whether it's black jurors or white jurors, and I wish we could get back to that as a country. Let's turn to the second Clementis announcement this week, and that was former President Trump announcing he'd received what he characterized as a target letter from Jack Smith around his January 6th investigation. I was wondering if we could start with explaining what that is, maybe how that's different than a subpoena for a grand jury or other communication, either a witness or a target might receive from prosecuting attorney and what that means. So, Tom, the only thing worse than getting a target letter from the Justice Department is when everybody else who was involved in the crime, except you, didn't get a target letter. (laughs) They suggest that everybody's cooperating against you. So the, the letter that Trump received means that Jack Smith, the special counsel, believes that he already has probable cause to indict Donald Trump. He's not waiting on the testimony of a additional witness or the outcome of a forensic test or something like that, he can go tomorrow and indict him. I think what the letter meant in this circumstance, we haven't seen the letter. So all we're going on is what Trump said about it, which may be a garble, is, as I understand it, he was asked to fork over some documents to the grand jury by tomorrow. He wasn't necessarily asked to appear before the grand jury tomorrow. It would be unusual if a defendant who's already indicted in one case is asked to go testify in front of the grand jury in another case, but that first case unadjudicated. But it means that Jack Smith, he's got the gun cocked, he's ready to pull the trigger. Yeah, I would only add, if it's for a person to actually testify rather than a subpoena ducus tecum, they don't have to testify and incriminate themselves, or they either appear or they just take the fifth. So I agree, it's something where the government already has its case. If I were Trump's lawyer's I wouldn't let him say a word in there other than, you know, I take the fifth. But we haven't seen the actual letter. I suspect, like Kevin alluded to, it's probably something more akin to what's called a subpoena jucastica, which is for the production of documents. So do you feel like this move by Jack Smith was to try to get ahead of any indictment that might have come out of the state of Georgia? I suspect that's got to be on his mind. I mean, I think the Justice Department was embarrassed by the January 6th committee moving out so far in front of their investigation. And it would be doubly embarrassing if a comparatively small district attorney's office was able to build what seems to be a big conspiracy and racketeering case against the president while DOJ still hadn't gotten out of the starting box. I'm almost loath to comment because it's conjecture there. And I would hope that federal authorities are not motivated by what might be taking place in a parallel state jurisdiction. In other words, your master in these circumstances is supposed to be justice, and people are human. But I would hope that 
he's moving at the pace based upon the facts in front of him and what he's able to prove rather than letting what a state prosecutor is doing goad him into doing things out of a timing that might be natural for the facts that he's gathered and the case that he's building. So probably not the same as Kevin's response there, but having kind of sat in that federal prosecutor's seat, I just would not let that drive me in terms of a motivating factor to bring my case before a state entity. Would the District of Columbia be an appropriate venue for a case involving the January 6th insurrection? I think so. With the documents case, you could argue that the crime took place in either D.C. or Florida, or perhaps New Jersey, also because documents were apparently in Bedminster. But it looks like most of what took place, both uh, prefatory to January 6th, and of course on January 6th itself, was in the district. So I'd be surprised if they brought it anywhere other than the district, not because they're looking for Democratic jurors or jurors of a certain race, but because that's where most of the acts took place. Yeah, I would agree with Kevin there. Both the speech, although I don't think the speech is particularly critical, but all of the phone calls to the state officials that he tried to allegedly lean on to find votes, like in Georgia and elsewhere, the false slate of electors, the calls that would have taken place to support those different actions would have originated in Washington, D.C. at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So I think that once you kind of look at that, like Kevin said, that most of the acts in support of that indictment would have taken place in Washington, D.C. And then the third general momentous announcement from this week came from the attorney general of the state of Michigan, who announced charges against a series of persons who claimed to be electors from the state of Michigan, or it turns out they were fake electors. So I was wondering if you might be able to explain what you understand that would entail and how that prosecution may or may not relate to any of the topics we've touched on so far. It's super interesting because we all know that the federal prosecutor, Smith, is also looking at the fake elector scheme because he's specifically subpoenaed some individuals who were electors or state election officials in the different states that the results were in question legitimately or illegitimately. It's a very apt indictment. It's a fraud saying that someone won the election and they didn't, and that you're the legitimately appointed elector who's been chosen by the state legislature and the secretary of state when you're not, is whatever else it is, a fraud. So good for the Michigan attorney general in taking care of that within her own backyard. Yeah, I agree. Very apt prosecution. Having investigated a few instances of election fraud cases in Alabama that ended up not being accurate or true. It's almost a no win for the prosecutor because there are going to be allegations of partisanship, regardless of the outcome of the merit of your case. Nonetheless, you do it to protect the integrity of the election system. And I think once the facts come out and people value the system that we all participate in as Americans to arrive at our elected officials. Most folks appreciate that. And by the way, when I was in Alabama, I was investigating alleged Democratic election fraud activity. It just didn't bear out. But had it, 
I would have prosecuted it to the fullest extent of the law because it's important that when we go cast our vote at the polls that we have confidence in the election process. So putting up a fake slate of electors is extremely egregious. And I think the Michigan Attorney General is extremely well warranted in going after. Something I read that I thought was interesting, Kenyon, was I believe they have these meetings on tape where some of these fake electors were chosen. And some of the individuals said something to the effect of, you know, if you want me to sign that I'm willing to be an elector, if Trump is found to have actually won the election, I'm willing to stand by and do that. I'm willing to, for the purpose of litigating the issue, say I'd be willing to be an elector, which would not be illegal if there's an election dispute that's going on in good faith and being litigated. But yeah, apparently some of the people there just said no falsely declare that this is taking place in the state legislative chamber, falsely declare that you've just been selected by the state legislature, falsely declare that President Trump won the state. It's outrageous. Yeah, it's outrageous. Well, Dilliman, I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to visit with me, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. I'm sure nothing interesting is going to happen over the next few weeks, Tom. Maybe around Christmas, we'll check in.